This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast features Laura Fields. Laura is an American whiskey historian, and on this episode, we go down many American whiskey history tangents. Please do reach out to Laura and let her know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guest. She's Laura Fields. I'm Rich Shane. This is Fermented Adventure, the podcast. But this is the tangent going down a tangent whiskey thing with Laura Fields. Laura, we <laughs> welcome to the podcast again. <laughs> Thanks. Have we, we really, have we figured out a name for this? This is, we're going to get together every once in a while and just talk whiskey history, rye whiskey history. We're, we're going to drink a little bit. I think we both already started. So, um, this could be interesting <laughs> and fascinating, but I think the idea is we're going to go down a whiskey tangent, right? That's yeah. That welcome to my world. Everything, every time whiskey comes up or I start talking about it, I end up going down one tangent or another. So it makes sense to call it whiskey tangents. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll see. <laughs> and that's how our conversations go anyway. I mean, we we never really record our phone conversations or um, you know, but they just seem to. We start with one thing, and the next thing you know, we're talking about this and this and this comes up, and then oh, have you heard of this? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did that today. Actually, earlier today, I got the, a chance to talk to uh, Trent Zoller. Uh, you, ever, you ever hear? Do um, you know Trey Zoller from um, Jefferson Whiskey? Yeah, his father um, is incredible. Obviously, he wrote a book. It's basically a book about all of the pre-pro Kentucky distilleries, and um, I was finally able to connect with him through a friend. Amazing. Yeah, I finally got a chance to talk to him today, and you know he's in his eighties, and he's just he he helped found Jefferson's whiskey. And that in itself is amazing. But he wrote this amazing book with that's very similar to what I've been working on with all of these um, Kentucky distilleries instead of Pennsylvania. So the two of us were kind of comparing notes and boy, did we go down some tangents. It was fun. I, I don't know. I love talking to older, wiser men <laughs> in the whiskey world. They have so much to say. So well, I think that was that's fun. The, I think that's the basis of where this all comes together. It's your fascination with whiskey history. It's your fascination with Pennsylvania whiskey, Pennsylvania rye history, and all that comes about it with the agriculture of it as well, right? Oh, yeah. The And I was actually talking to him about this today, that my fascination with it is so rooted in the people. 
um, you know, for a lot of people, they want to taste whiskeys and they want to, you know, involve themselves in the um, intricacies of of mash bills and things like that. And and yes, that's interesting to me. But um, more interesting to me is the dynamic of of the family connection because pre prohibition whiskeys um, were very much connected to an old business that had been around for you know decades, if not generations. And so that's the thing that fascinates me that that these aren't just, you know, distilleries that sprung up overnight for a quick buck. These are, you know, families that were invested in in these companies. And um, I don't know, I mean, it took generations for them to kind of determine what this, what their whiskey was going to be and how they were going to stand out in a crowd and how they were going to advertise. And I, I mean, there's so much that that goes with it that always keeps me fascinated and interested. Well, if you follow your, especially Facebook postings, you've got this wonderful thread of little nuggets that you find (laughs) whiskey history, American whiskey history. And that's what you're calling it, right? Yes. And specifically American. Um, I think that most of the information that's out there is um, supplied to the American whiskey drinking public by bourbon uh, enthusiasts and and bourbon historians and bourbon researchers and that's all fine and good but bourbon is not the center of the universe for American whiskey I mean it is today of course it is today but if you go back before prohibition it was not um, the pinnacle of American whiskey before prohibition was rye um, and you know the fascinating stories that come out of that are you know vast and varied but you know to get all of your information from people who only focus on bourbon is shortchanging the topic of American whiskey because American whiskey includes rye whiskey and includes um, really, I mean, if you want to get into it, um, corn whiskeys and um, brandies and rum even. So, I mean, there's so many (laughs) divergent. Well, well, that's why we said tangents, right? We're going to tangents because once you start down, you know, I, I kind of wanted to call it, you know, going down the whiskey rabbit hole, but uh, yeah. that seemed to be a little too, uh, I don't know, suggestive. Wordy. I don't know what we're gonna do. <laughs> I, no, it's not. I think that's all you do when you study whiskey history. I mean, there is you end rabbit up down hole. rabbit holes. Yeah, there is rabbit hole. I mean, so that's okay. Um, yeah. I, I guess, you know, just the idea, you know, from what you've been posting lately, um, just the idea, like even today, you say that, you know, most of the history is really being told through a lens of bourbon, right? Right, but exactly. There's there's this whole idea of all these small distilleries, as you pointed out, family-owned distilleries. And after looking at that one article that you did about, you know, why couldn't pre-prohibition whiskey, why can't that be better or be considered better than what they're producing today based right. on all the technology? And you framed it very well, but but I also what I what I summarized from that conversation that you had on on that blog post was, well, isn't isn't really today about craft? Isn't isn't the craft idea about the family idea as it was back then? Similarly, it's similar. I mean, there's a huge difference between the whiskey world today and the whiskey world before prohibition. And that is pretty much wrapped up in the three tier system Um, before prohibition that did not exist. And uh, distilleries were responsible for their own distribution. So if you were say a small distillery opening up in, you know, 
your hometown, wherever that may be, um, and they wanted to make something of themselves and sell their product, they could get a retail license and open up a shop downtown and sell to locals. They could sell wholesale by the barrel um, to restaurants or to um, hotels or businesses that sell like bars and you know taverns and things like that. And you could make a good living just selling wholesale by the barrel, never selling a bottle in your life. Um, you, your, your biggest customers were the rectifiers who would buy your, your, um, product in bulk. They would often buy it young, you know, so it's not like you really had to do a whole heck of a lot of aging. You didn't have to have 15, you know, 30,000 barrel warehouses. Uh, you could have one and you just move your product so quickly and stay in business and function and live, <laughs> you know? Um, you didn't have to have a bottling line. It just wasn't necessary. Uh, the people that handled the bottling were the rectifiers. And so after you sold their product or sold your product directly to them, they would then repackage it under their own label. You still made your money. You were fine, you know? Like you sold wholesale and you were happy and contented to take their money. And then they would mark it up um, and pay their taxes and everything else. and. It was just a very different world where today, if you're starting a distillery, you are obligated to, you know, get a distributor to manage your product for you. Um, you must bottle your own product, which was not the case until after prohibition, um, which is wildly expensive, <laughs> you know, to have to buy bottles um, for whiskey and then to determine, you know, how long you're going to age it for, how long you're going to sit on that stuff, you know? where before there were so many options, you didn't have to sell vodka to survive for four years while you were aging your bottled and bond. You could sell your young whiskey spirit at one-year-old or two-year-old, and you didn't even have to distill it all the way. You could distill it to high wines or you could you could distill it to, you know, um, what neutral grain spirit and sell that. So that could be like your side hustle, you know, <laughs> like the, there were so many ways for, for distillers to make money back then. And today you're kind of um, saddled with all of this extra stuff, which is kind of the product of the larger distilleries who were successful after prohibition, passing all those laws and saying, yeah, you know what? You should have to bottle your own stuff. And, and, and why should you have to do that? Because we can, <laughs> we can afford to do it. Right. And you guys can't. And so you won't be our, any competition to us. And, you know, good luck to you in all your endeavors. <laughs> you know, what so. I find fascinating is, I mean, you know, in, in having conversations with people, I mean, I can make my own wine at home. I can make my own beer at home. I can make my own mead. I can make my own cider. And, you know, obviously, as just a hobby, I mean, technically mm -hmm. and legally, I'm not supposed to be making distilling stuff, right? Right. Yes, and, that is highly illegal. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I there seems to be such a, a different dynamic as to if I want to become a hobbyist, mm -hmm. why can't I do that? But there's so many laws, as you pointed out, that have layered this to remove competition. But we're seeing competition spring up. Like, you know, look, you and I, we, we have a limited amount that we share similarly, um, but we're both drinking um, what we consider the uh, Dick Stoll birthday uh, whiskey, right? Yeah, the birthday and, bourbon. Yeah, yeah, the birthday bourbon, and this is from Stolen Wolf, and this is a product of 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 love and labor and family. Mm -hmm. And this is this is a very similar to just a very craft niche product. So yes. it is being done. It, it's just being done under the confines and laws of you know where we are today. 
Yeah, no, it's funny. I was talking to Eric about this. Um, Eric Wolf, uh, owner of Stolen Wolf, and saying to him, like, you know, wouldn't that have been great to be able to sell wholesale? And he's like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's like that would be spectacular. Like, it would be a, such a different world. And he's like, but I can't think about that. I got a business to run. Of course. So, you know, so he's got a tasting room, which is a, a new dynamic now. It was that was not the case. You weren't allowed to sell uh, retail out of a distillery um, back before Prohibition. That was a big no, no. Um, but, you know, but you could have another retail location. I think it ha- was like it had to be 100 feet away or something like that in the city. There there is such weird regulations. Uh, but, yeah, you had to have a separate location if you wanted to sell retail. And they did that like uh, the distilleries out in the middle of nowhere. Um, which was great. You know, you keep your Booneyville distillery and then you have, you know, your, your rectifying business downtown in Philadelphia or in Baltimore or in New York. And you just bought or brought your product to that location and sold from there and distributed from there and had multiple offices all over the country and yada, yada. But that's the big guys. But, but I digress. Still, but still, you, <laughs> might, you bring that point, but it's so like the distillers today, the craft selling at farmer's markets. Oh, yeah. You know, a way to find it. Look, I, I thought, you know, when you said, you know, sell wholesale, again, breweries can bring kegs and right. to the bar. I mean, it's it's not like a distiller can put their keg like they used to in the bar and just sell out of the keg, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's not it's a different bonding situation. It's just a, it, it's a very different business. Um, interesting, you know, but it'd be the wonderful thing about today is you have craft distillers um, that have their own agendas. Um, unfortunately, a lot of craft distillers don't understand what was happening before prohibition to even want that. Do you know what I mean? Like there's not a lot of information out there about how small distilleries functioned. It honestly wouldn't be advantageous for the larger distilleries to start telling them like, Oh, this is how you can be successful, you know? But um, those law changes that would need to take place um, really should have been taking place right after prohibition, but there just weren't enough physical distilleries to argue the point anymore. You know, there were very powerful um, men basically who uh, had their lobbyists in Washington and, and, and basically got what they wanted. And then all the small guys were just like, Hey, And then 10 years later, they didn't have anything left to say. They were gone. So you spend a lot of time doing research. And especially, I think, the pre-prohibition part mm-hmm. of whiskey history. What is it that's so fascinating? How did it come? How did this all come to be for you that this is so fascinating and, and where you like to you dig up these little nuggets? And, and how do you find these things? We're, you know, talk about that for you. Well, I mean, it's been about a decade. It's not like I just stumble upon this stuff overnight. The wonderful thing that well, OK, so one of the people that inspired me to want to do this um, were my friends, John and Linda Lippman. Um, they live out in Ohio and they have a website online called Ellen J. And uh, another person um such an inspiration, Jack Sullivan, who has a website on online. It's uh, those pre-pro whiskey men. And I got into that, both of those websites, um, you know, I guess early teens, 2000 teens. And, you know, it was just reading them and breathing them in and reading them over and over and over again and going like, man, I wish, I wish I knew these people. I wish I, you know, was able to, to get involved in doing the things that they were doing. It was so exciting. 
And then I said, well, why can't I, you know? So I started reaching out to them. And it was also at the time when, you know, I was founding my nonprofit and I was um, starting to do a lot more traveling, um, making my way across Pennsylvania and founding the American Whiskey Convention and all of that. It was all gelling. And, you know, I finally had the opportunities to look into these things and meet these people and actually meeting John and Linda for the first time um, for when they came out to speak at the American Whiskey Convention about the history of rye. Uh, you know, I tried so hard to convince them that they should be writing a book. And I was like, you guys have got to get this information down. You know, nobody understands how important Pennsylvania rye whiskey was. And I'm starting to learn about it. And I just, I wish you guys would write a book. That I want to read that book. And both of them were like, I would love to, you know, have the interest in doing that. I just don't. <laughs> and uh, so I went, well, damn, I mean, if you're not going to do it, I guess I have to do it. Somebody's got to do it. And that's kind of the story of my life, like everything with the grain, like, well, somebody's got to do it. Might as well be me. Somebody's got to start, you know, promoting Pennsylvania whiskey. Might as well be me. And somebody's got to write this book. Might as well be me. So a couple of years before my children were born, I started really digging into the individual distilleries that they had visited. And then it all snowballed because I started to realize that there, each time I would find a piece of information, it, it created another question. Once I learned about this distillery, it would say, oh, and then, you know, uh, they were purchased by Shenley. And I went, okay, well, I've never heard that before. And what, how did Shenley get involved in all this? And then that would lead me down another rabbit hole. And then, you know, learning about Shenley would make me want to learn about the big four and, you know, the distillers that were successful after Prohibition. And it bounced me everywhere. And, you know, getting to see the forest through the trees of all this is is really the difficulty. So as I began to write about each individual distillery, that's when things started to come together for me. Because beginning to understand how one distillery functions on one side of the state uh, of Pennsylvania and another distillery is functioning on the other side of the state. And then how those two are functioning at the same time and how the laws that are taking place are affecting their businesses and how, you know, their whiskey is going down, you know, or up, I should say, the Monongahela River and down the Ohio and down the Mississippi. And then all of that, how it ties into Kentucky, as I said, rabbit holes left and right. Tangents, but, rabbit holes, right. Yeah. But making those connections and seeing those dovetails between what seem like you know, disparate topics, it, you know, it, it really does start to come together. I mean, it took me <laughs> years and years of, of doing this to actually make those connections, but I feel like now I have more of a, of a whole, a holistic view of, you know, Pennsylvania whiskey. So you're bringing together a record of mm -hmm. Pennsylvania history in whiskey. Is that right. safe to say? I think so. Um, yeah, I think, unfortunately, Rye got the rough end of the stick after Prohibition. Um, and so much of it has been forgotten. It's, it's another thing I was talking to Mr. Zoller about today that, you know, the three chamber still that um, Leopold Brothers brought back online, that everybody in the whiskey industry was, you know, oh my goodness, what is this new fangled device? And I'm I'm like reading all these articles going, ah, like how can no one know about this? This is one of the most impactful inventions for distilling in America. 
And it has been completely forgotten, like erased, whitewashed. From your um, research, and- how is it? I mean, again, I mean, I learn again the same way you learn. You you, you stumble mm-hmm. across somebody publishing something. You you learn. Okay, Leopold Brothers, Three Chambers, still. What the heck is that? You know, how did that come about? Where you know, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. But it's as if it was an artisan who you know. You look at some of these older buildings in the United States, anyway, built in the 1700s, 1800s, and and there's workmanship that you can't find anybody to do today. Right? How did all that get forgotten or just ignored or just? Somebody went to a different place and just stopped thinking about it. Well, I think so much of whiskey is marketing. And so you can guide the conversation with, you know, dazzling um, wording and graphic design. You know, you can um, cr- you can basically just craft the story however you like. And it was the winners of Prohibition that crafted the story. And that was um, the big four and uh, the Kentucky distillers who were basically owned by New York interests, but, you know, were functioning in the same way today. This has not changed. Distillers all kind of fib about who their owners are. And maybe they don't lie per se, but they don't, you know, come out and say like, oh, yeah, big daddy over here. (laughs) Um, Diageo or, you know, Pernod Ricard or whoever it happens to be is the one cutting the checks. Nobody talks about that. You know, we talk about these individual um, um, independent businesses. And that's the same way that it was after Prohibition. The the distilleries in Kentucky were owned by umbrella companies, much like they are today. It hasn't changed much. You know, nothing wrong with that. Obviously, that's welcome to corporate America. But it's, um, you know, the, the Pennsylvania distilleries just kind of got shoved aside um, because they didn't fit the marketing strategy. You know, if you want to talk about straight whiskey, um, you can talk about straight whiskey and drown out pure rye and, you know, make that go away. So much so that even, you know, Pennsylvania and Maryland distilleries that were able to survive into the 50s and 60s were basically production centers for Kentucky. So, you know, up into the 70s, um, Michter's was the one making um, Wild Turkey 101, you know, and um, before that, it was the Baltimore uh, Pure Rye Distillery in in Baltimore. So they didn't start making their own rye whiskey down in Kentucky at Wild Turkey until the mid 70s. And, you know, is that something they want to necessarily talk about? You know, is that why? Why um, talk about the success of Pennsylvania rye in a way that's going to undermine your main business? You know, everybody wants to source and say, we we get our our whiskeys from here. Really, we source it from elsewhere. <laughs> you know, that's it's definitely nothing new, you know. And it's still, and, you know, yeah. for whatever reason, it still remains today, as you pointed yes. out. What I wonder, you know, when you say things like that, I wonder what kind of world at least a whiskey world we would live in if rye had a prominent seat at the table. Mm. Look, I I think what's happening now is in, you know, you can share your opinion, but I think rye is nudging its way in very abruptly in, 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 in different circumstances, very, very strongly, very intentionally. I am 
excited to hear you say that, but I take it with a grain of salt. And I'll tell you why. Most of the rye whiskey that you see on the shelf is made in Kentucky. And if you understand like how rye whiskey was made and how rye whiskey became incredibly famous in the United States, it was made entirely differently than bourbon. From the fermentation, um, from the mashing to the fermentation to, you know, step mashing and all that stuff to um, the way that it was distilled, the type of still it was distilled in. It went into a chamber still, then a doubler, often a worm, a very long copper worm. It was more similar to single malt scotch than um, than bourbon in any way. Um, you know, bourbon is more, in, I you know, compare it more to like single grain whiskeys in Scotland because they're using the column still, you know, and stripping a lot of the character out of the grain, which is fine when you're using commodity grain. There's not a whole lot of character there anyway. But but if you're using a specialty grain, it's not going to perform as well um, unless you're manipulating the column in a certain way, which you can do, like Stolen Wolf. Um, but again, it it's... Without that three chamber, without the heated warehouses in Pennsylvania, you know, without the entirely different process that they used, you cannot call American rye whiskey today rye whiskey in the same way that it was before it went away. You know, um, the last remnants of it, even um, in at Michter's and um, Roughdale and things like that, it already started to take on the characteristics of, um, you know, mass produced whiskey with a column still. They got rid of, uh, Michter's got rid of their three chamber, I think in the early seven, uh, late 60s, I think it was, Dick Stoll told me, um, and moved the column in when Penco took over. And so, modernizing almost meant taking away the character that made rye rye, you know? And so now when you're looking at rye whiskeys, I would say the closest thing that attaches rye whiskey to what rye once was are those that are using pot stills, um, hybrid pot stills that are really focusing on their fermentation and actually using yeasts that are advantageous for rye. Um, you know, I was listening to an interview with um, Edwin Foote the other day where he was talking about how they did the switch over from um, fresh yeast that they had to culture every day to dry yeast that they would order in bulk. And he goes, oh, that was great. It was the you know greatest thing. It made everything so much easier. And all I could think to myself was, yes, there's another step away from what it was, you know. And then he also talked about how they hated making rye whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> this is Stitzel Weller, by the way, very, you know, famous distillery from Kentucky. And they're like, we hated making rye whiskey. It was the worst. <laughs> you know, we used our bourbon yeast and I was like, okay, they're using bourbon yeast. We're using the the chamber still. I mean, not the chamber still, excuse me, the, the column still. Um, it was a mess. You know, we just, and I was like, it's because you don't, you, you guys don't make rye and that's fine. You're great at making bourbon stick with bourbon we made it differently, it, you know, in Pennsylvania, in, in Maryland, the distillers that existed in those states were highly specialized, you know, master distillers. And that's all gone now. Like, it's amazing to me, you know, to talk about this right now and just kind of say it's gone, but it, it very much is. And and the the new whiskey that's coming around now is attempting 
to get there. And I truly believe it will. But I think more folks like, you know, researchers like me, people interested in in Pennsylvania whiskey, people down in Maryland who are doing the same thing, God bless them, you know, like to study Maryland rye whiskey, all of that is going to be so important to give purpose and um, meaning to these new distilleries coming online that, you know, they have a leg to stand on. It, they don't have to be bourbon knockoffs. They can be rye in an entirely different way. They don't have to make it in a column still, you know, and, 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 you know, ferment for like the process was very, very different. I, I mean, it's hard to get into because there's a lot there, but um, take my word for it. Totally different animal. See, this is, this is the fascinating part about this because when I say as a young consumer, um, young to whiskey, I don't have the reference points, neither, n- nobody really does, of what mm-hmm. that rye would have tasted like pre-prohibition. Right. Have you ever had some of the pre-pro stuff? Can't say I have. <laughs> oh, no. We're going to have to get I know. Some. It's a tragedy, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, yes, but no. I mean, the closest thing that you're going to get now to a pre-prohibition whiskey is Leopold Brothers. And I have had that. And that is, as we were talking prior to recording, that is a delicious rye. So, yeah, yeah I mean, if that's as close as I get, but, you know, we're, we're not back with, with horse-drawn, you know, carriages and stuff running <laughs> through the street and, you know, that all those little distilleries, you know, family run, and as you talked about, with their three-chamber or, you know, with the process. That, as you said, is lost. And Mm -hmm. I can't compare it to anything of what we have today other than saying rye is being recognized. The rye of today is being recognized. Now, is somebody going to take that research or be focused on saying we're going all the way back and we're going to take and try to recreate these old methods and this is going to be the rye of what we're going to produce? Yeah, I mean, look at what Stolen Wolf was doing. Uh, you know, the the fact that they're recreating that Rosen rye that you were there for to see them um, use this old rye and then to taste it and go, oh, dear God, this is different. What is this? Why doesn't this taste like what I'm used to? The the um, I was talking to Alan Bishop about this the other day, the, the fact that people describe rye whiskey as being peppery and as being, you know, baking spices and stuff like that. That ain't what rye used to taste like. Before Prohibition, those were considered mistakes in the distillate. And you didn't want a peppery characteristic to your rye. You wanted more fruit, herbaceous, um, heavy, uh, you know, dense flavors that were layered upon one another. Um, a note of pepper is was actually considered a flaw. So these characteristics now um, that we associate with rye, I've seen, I can't tell you how many articles I've read where they say, you know, this expert panel got together and tasted bourbons and ryes next to one another and could not differentiate between the two. And I'm like, oy vey, like, okay, yes, you're right. They couldn't. And you know why? Because the two were made identically to one another. You can tweak a mash bill and any distiller will be able to tell you this. If you're using the same processes to make a whiskey, you can tweak the mash bill in one direction or another. I mean, look at Sazerac rye is 51% rye. And 
you know, the, one of the four roses recipes is like 36% rye. Okay. You put those next to each other. Are you really going to be able to taste the dynamic difference between them? They're made so similarly to one another. Um, you know, and I don't want to disparage either one of those. They're great. Whiskeys. I don't think you're disparaging. I think right. it brings us back to the idea that rye is not bourbon, right? Bourbon is bourbon. Rye is rye. And, you know, you said some things there that stood out for me and what stood out was lately i feel yeah. like what i'm enjoying in rise are rise that i have to stop and rethink my palate and say wait a second i don't get the peppery notes here i don't get the baking spice but i'm in mm. love with the floral notes i'm in love with the grassy notes the complexity as you characterized and it seems like those are the rise that i'm finding now Mm-hmm. Um, we were just in, you know, I, I, we were just in Chicago and um, we we came across Judson and Moore uh, Distillery. It's a three-year-old distillery. They yep. have a three-year-old rye. And yep. I'll tell you what, it was delicious. Oh, and yeah. it, it was, as you said, it was complex. And again, they're, they're pulling stuff out of, I, I think we go back to that whole conversation, terroir, provenance, but I think that, that's uniqueness. That that's where I say that this this idea of making rye it wasn't like their bourbon and it wasn't mm-hmm. like their single malt. And that's what I'm seeing today. And that's where I'm able to retrain at least become more associated with maybe what you're saying. And it's the first time anybody said to me, and maybe other listeners on the podcast know this, but it's the first time I'm hearing saying, "Huh, oh, if you had peppery notes and baking spice, that was considered a flaw." And not necessarily baking spices. I mean, it all depends no, on how you're. But, how but you're, let's go back you know, to pepper. Yeah, but let's go back to pepper. And that seems to be if you don't taste that in a rye or your idea of a rye today is pepper. And and that's not what a rye back pre-prohibition was. Well, that's mm-hmm. a whole different world, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a different way of distilling. It's a different way of um, manipulating your still. It's, um, you know, using that worm to condense that distillate into this, you know, rich, viscous stuff, you know, like there was so much more character. And it's, you know, you mentioned rye and I can't let this go. Rye is called the flavoring grain. Specifically, <laughs> I mean, it's one thing you, you, you'll never get an argument from a bourbon guy. They always tell you that oh, rye is the flavoring grain. And when rye isn't used, wheat is the flavoring grain. So, you know, basically what they're saying is corn is just there you know, as like the sad, the horse and, 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 you know, carrying the, the ethanol basically. Um, so you get these higher yields and that's all fine and good. I mean, you can read, um, Philadelphia distilling journals, um, from the early 1800s, even that'll tell you that using corn in your rye mash is very advantageous. It, it really makes for a much easier, um, ferment, you know, you don't have as much, uh, foam, um, the the corn kind of tames it and makes it easier. But what people don't add to that is that adding corn um, to a rye mash wasn't just easier. That distillate wasn't used to barrel and age. It was used to sell to rectifiers who would then turn it into cherry bounce or something else. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, not like, like they were cherry bounce though. <laughs> I do too. I really do. I'm not knocking cherry bounce. I'm just saying like, you know, the, the rectifiers wanted 
an easy high octane distillate and that did that well and that kind of translated to the later 1800s where you know the whiskey trust really wanted those high corn mashes the folks in new york who were who were had these monstrous distilleries that were just cranking it out you know full bore (laughs) like they um had all this distillate they were selling for you know pennies on the dollar and what were they using corn they weren't using rye rye was much more expensive so i mean adding corn it's great it works it's it's it makes things easier um it makes things much less expensive but if you want flavor impactful flavor and you say to somebody in scotland i'd like you to add some corn to that you know malt that you've got they would laugh you out of the distillery like no you just wouldn't do that um and that's kind of the way it was up in pennsylvania they were kind of rude about it up here actually i'm afraid that i'm following in their footsteps i apologize i, I love bourbon no, i'm not you knocking pen- it that makes you pennsylvania <laughs> i'm very yes <laughs> right so ridiculous but yeah the um the i people don't in pennsylvania hear you were super it. anti i don't hear you knocking it because i think Good. corn and its place in bourbon is is very special yes and it is yes with that, you're going to get a lot of depth and character, the sweetness of the corn. And I think it all goes back to something you said that's very important. It, it's about how it's treated. It's about how it's distilled. It's 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 very purposeful. Yeah. It's not this, you know, you touched on somewhere where carrots used to be distilled. I mean, you could pretty oh. much distill <laughs> yeah. anything, right? I mean, at the yes. end of the day, but but we talk about where we are now versus where we were you know, why did farmers in Pennsylvania grow rye? Why Mm. did those distillers in Kentucky and Virginia, you know, utilize corn? And, you know, how did it become the grains of choice versus, I mean, so many decisions were made to get to where they were then to get to where we are today. Yeah, I think that that's another very oversimplified conversation. You know, you get the easy answer, which is, well, corn grew better in Kentucky. And come on, uh, I guess, but is that why you distilled it? No, you, you distilled it because, um, you couldn't distill barley because it didn't grow. Um, and you didn't distill wheat because that was an absolute necessity for flour and for food stuff. So, you know, what was something that made excellent distillate back home? in you know germany and in um uh sweden and you know the i don't know eastern europe and right. you know it was bavaria and right you know, there were a lot of rye rye was very prominent and that's right the nordic countries towards. yes absolutely i mean the first settlers in in pennsylvania were the swedes and you know the um the germans and then you know the irish came along and it there's the scots irish and of course they wanted to I, this is a very i'm not i don't want to oversimplify anything what i'm saying is that the legally um you were not allowed to distill wheat and they didn't want to distill corn and even when you start to get closer to the civil war corn was very kind of no no because the southerners used corn in their whiskey and you know we don't like the southerners because we're near the civil war now right so you have this very kind of um country full of animosity that are 
pointing their finger and going, those Southerners use corn and those Yankees use rye. And that's, it, it was, that dynamic was taking place. You know, you can't ignore that. It happened, you know? Um, so there was that as well. And all of the political stuff behind it, there's so much more than just, it grew better up here. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> don't get me wrong. But we have- this is exactly, this is that tangent, yeah. right? This right. is, we don't know where we're going to end up but we know where we started. And there's, like you said, it becomes political. It becomes territorial. Yep. It's just it's just crazy how I wonder, had things not kind of, the dominoes not fallen the way they were and mm-hmm. have, what what would the world look, you know, what would this whiskey world look like today that, that you're bringing back the conversation of? I mean, it's so difficult to, to make that claim the more the more i researched this stuff the more i realized that you know the cast was set you know like it, the or the die was cast or whatever you however you want to put it the <laughs> way that the country even with presidential elections what it came down to was all support of the most powerful and you know in the late 1800s the most powerful um portion of the whiskey industry was the whiskey trust you know they were set up in peoria and you know started to (laughs) what's that yeah yeah sorry (laughs) illinois yep so and you can't neglect that part of the country either i mean we're talking about american whiskey here this isn't just pennsylvania and kentucky and maryland you have illinois indiana new york um, massachusetts for heaven's sakes like um ohio Everybody was involved, you know, down to New Orleans and and out to Minnesota and beyond. This is a very universal thing. But um, now I forgot where the hell I was going with that. Well, we were talking <laughs> about we, we were talking about the, the, the whiskey trust. I mean, you had a oh, wonderful yes. article about Joseph Greenhut. And mm-hmm. um, I think you talked about Samuel Rice and you brought yep. all that together. And it's funny how you mentioned Samuel Rice and uh, S.M. Rice. He's not really well known in the circles of history in bourbon or whiskey. But then you kind of weave together how I, I think he just was just. He was a guy that found his way to being in charge, but he ran on all these ideas that he became. Right. He ran against all these ideas he became as as, as I kind of read the way you kind of framed it. Well, that's everybody, you know, right, what, but- what, as the whiskey world, as the whiskey industry developed, even the people that started out with, you know, ambitions to just anybody who was super ambitious in the world of whiskey was on par with the railroad tycoons and the you know, they all were friends, the, the oil guys. And, you know, everybody was vertically integrated and, you know, hanging out and smoking cigars with the same people, you know, it's not that weird that Frick, um, uh, Henry Frick and, and Carnegie, um, and all those guys were all on the same, you know, playing field together. Uh, whiskey was as, important if not even more so because half of the nation's income was wrapped up in whiskey so people you know it was the hush hush thing that nobody really talked about but it was funding the united states government so there's so many like undercurrents and stuff and you know you bring up sm rice i mean this guy um he came out of uh, hanover distilling company 
and, you know, kind of moved his way up by, you know, rubbing elbows with the right people. And his ideas were so grandiose and um, crafty, you know, like his his way of manipulating the market was was smarter. Uh, now that corporations were taking over, he was really understanding how all of that worked and how it could work. And so just as the trusts were moving over to companies and then, you know, uh, creating subsidiaries and, you know, creating corporations, which, by the way, was not even legal in Pennsylvania until 1901. Like, yes, the other um, businesses in, in America, like the railroads and the, the oil companies and the coal and stuff. Yes, they had corporations, but whiskey wasn't allowed to. They were barred from becoming corporate until 1901, which is also why there was a big boom. Again, I'm going, sorry, that's tangent. That's our tangent. Uh, <laughs> but um, the the um, whiskey trust was so all powerful in that late 1800s era um, that they kind of just drowned everybody else out. So even if rye, the rye distillers, independent, um, wealthy, sitting pretty, had just, weren't allowed to become corporations, by the way, because we're still talking about the late 1800s, um, where other corporations in New York and um, New Jersey and other states were quite successful forming corporations. Pennsylvania was kind of on its own and, and kind of maintaining its own individuality. And that individuality and that independence created um, value because they, you know, everybody wanted it, but not everybody could have it. They were limiting production. So you start to see production numbers between bourbon and rye um, really shift in those years where you start seeing bourbon production go way up and rye production come way down. And that's also how rye held its value, because while rye, well, while bourbon was being wildly overproduced, rye whiskey was being tamped. Um, the rye whiskey workers were or workers. Um, the owners were working together, and um, you know, even the rectifying houses and the, and the liquor wholesalesmen were all kind of talking to one another and managing the situation. And so, while the distilleries in in Kentucky were all being bought up by the whiskey trust. Pennsylvania maintained its integrity and its independence. Now, that is what ultimately became their downfall, <laughs> because without a corporate umbrella, when prohibition came along, they were all screwed. Like even no matter how wealthy they were, if you're an independent business and you don't have and we see this today, don't we? Yes, you know, we where if you're a big company and you want to maintain you know, your independence, you have to almost sell out because you need that distribution network and you need that that ability to um, to grow and how do you grow and how do you stay relevant? And that's effed up, <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, it is what it is like that. That was just the way that the country was going and the way that things were turning. And those whiskey distillers in Pennsylvania were wildly successful right up until prohibition. So much so that Pennsylvania distilleries did not believe that prohibition was going to take place. You see articles and news um, journalists interviewing some of the biggest distillers in Pennsylvania, and all of them are like, "This is going to blow over." You know, those probe, those um, temperance guys are jerks. They're never going to make this happen. And even if they do make it happen, we'll repeal it in a year or so. Don't worry about it. Well, they started to worry about it in 1917 when the war came, and that was that. And then you know, prohibition came, and they just got blindsided. And you know, during those years of prohibition. All those wealthy guys that I was just telling you about died. 
<laughs> because that's 13 years of men who started their companies. At, you know, they were gray haired men by the time. Right. And there was nothing came. to leave their kids. And there, even, even if that were the case, there was really no businesses that they would want to. I mean, there were a lot of um, bourbon distilleries. You know, history, mm-hmm. history shows that we're able to have the lineage, the family continue to stay involved. And when pro with that know, corporate umbrella. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you're right. It's funny because, you know, you talk about this mind frame of saying, you know, we're just going to remain independent and right. do our own way. But you ignored what was coming. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't want to see it because I guess they were drinking their own rye. And yeah, but you wouldn't have to see it. They, we, what we can't wrap our heads around today in the in the whiskey industry um, is that these men were fifth and sixth generation distillers. Um, they had been through it, you know, like they were distilling long before there was an excise tax. You know, they they came from nothing, built their businesses. Do you know what I mean? Like, imagine what it was like for any other company in America who was doing just fine. Look at the Cooperage businesses, you know, the the companies that were busy, um, I don't know, sewing machine factories. I mean, anything where you have a, a business that, that you've built over generations that you just can't fathom is going to go away. And then all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. And you you're not out of money. Like a lot of these guys did just fine, but they died and their little spoiled rich sons are now investing in, you know, coal and oil and um, railroads and dealing with the stock market crash. And <laughs> um, but they also have investments outside of whiskey. It's not just whiskey. They're they're wealthy men. They're not, you know, just relying entirely on a distillery. So they do make it, but they get into other things. You know, they they get into chemicals. They get into distilling uh, medicines. Lori, you mentioned East versus West. And I know we started with the what we consider the Stolen Wolf birthday bourbon. I switched to Quantum Spirits. They have a Solera whiskey. Came oh, you already switched that. your whiskey? Oh, I'm, oh, I'm on my third, by the way. Um, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm enjoying my third. Uh, Quantum Let's Spirits talk more is, drink, huh? is in the Western Pennsylvania area. We met them at the um, Whiskey Rebellion Festival. They were pouring a lot of great expressions, but I really fell in love with the Solero whiskey. Um, it's that's just delicious. Um, yeah. I, I know we went off a little bit from doing the rye, but I, I don't know if you switched at all or you're still working on the Stolen Wolf. I'm still working on the Stolen Wolf. I'm, you know, I baby all this stuff. All right. I'm just I, mad I don't have a cigar right now. <laughs> well, that's outside with your uh, turn of the century wood stove. Yes, that's true. That's exactly where that is. Maybe I'll get out there tonight. We'll see. It takes a long time to get that thing cranked. I can imagine. But once it's going, man, that thing looks like a raging furnace. I, I, I oh, don't yeah. know how that doesn't heat the whole neighborhood. I Well, they're not incredible. Like, uh, they're not like the wood stoves today where all the hot air is blowing in. It, it's a lot of it's going out the pipe. But yeah, it's just fine for me. I love it. I absolutely love it. I don't well, know what I to went- get to next. I went from Quantum Spirits and I went to the Koval uh, rye that's aged in Ambarana barrels. And I've got to get you some of this because. Yeah, please. Um, it's the first Ambarana finish. And I really wouldn't have thought about that or really paid much attention to it if I didn't have uh, Pat Tramontano. He's got the Ambarana wood, but I've never had the whiskey in that wood. And it is, you know, like 2023 is young, but this is almost my one of my favorite whiskeys of 2023 it's just delicious it's 
You know, you mentioned wow, high spice. this is like drinking, this is like drinking a, a whiskey bourbon or whiskey apple pie. You know, it's, 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 wow. but, but you've got the rye and the grassy notes and this apple and this peach and these cinnamon and nutmeg and it's all over the place. So I've got to get oh, a yeah. little, I got you a little taste of that one. So that one's a good one. So I don't know what you want to yeah. pour for yourself as we, as we kind of start to think about how are we going to wrap this up? <laughs> I hope, <laughs> yeah. look, here's the thing. <laughs> These conversations that I have, I learn so much and, and I almost feel selfish that it, it's almost like if I ask a question, I'm soaking up all this information. Where, where do you want, like you, you're writing a book and how close is your book to being published? And when can we see this, you know, on, on Amazon everywhere. Well, it's tough because, you know, like, again, talking to Mr. Zoller today, because the reason that I was talking to him is because um, I was recently sent a copy of his book and uh, I'd never read it before. I, I'd seen the cover of it before and um, was really excited to look at it. And then when I looked at it and realized that so much of it was so similar to the layout of what I had created for my Pennsylvania, um, I, I needed to talk to him right away. I was just like, you know, where did you come up with this layout? Like, how did you go about this? And he and I, I, I swear, like separated it. <laughs> just like we were such like minds and, and um, you know, listening to his, how everything developed, very similar to the track that I was on. And, and so we have a very similar layout. And I'm looking at that and going like, well, I could definitely do something like what he has done only for Pennsylvania. Um, and I think that can be its own book because I've written, oh, I haven't counted them, but I think it's like hundred and between 150 and 200 individual stories of distilleries that existed in Pennsylvania, about the families, the distillery itself, you know, its output, what type of still, like all that stuff. And then another book should probably focus on the history of Pennsylvania because that's too much to add to this <laughs> 150 stories like yeah it's it's well, just I too think much they're they're not they're, they're not long chapters i mean there's enough there to to be needy right but mm. you really get an in-depth understanding of what the whiskey world was like in pennsylvania and yes. i think the most important thing is you want to make sure that people embrace and understand there's more to this world than what came out of prohibition and if you know and you appreciate more of what's going on in, in, in the whiskey world, it becomes more interesting, doesn't it? Yes. And part of it for me is wanting to reach out um, to the whiskey, not even the whiskey world, individuals, right? So my stories are about individuals and their families. Those families are still out there. Most of them have disconnected any, you know, um, family connection to those distillers. And a lot of the time when I'm on ancestry, you know, looking up their family histories and, and talking to these people and communicating with them, they'll often go like, Oh no, 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 they weren't distillers. We, we, we didn't do that. No, 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 no. And I'm like, no, no, look here. And they're like, no, no. <laughs> la, la, la. So that's why something that I need to such fight. A, why do you think there's such a, a desire not to be connected to that then? <sighs> Prohibition. And um, propaganda so, against it's it. It's so far. It's so far away. For what it doesn't matter. It's with us every single day. Pennsylvania, especially. I mean, you go to the state store. Prohibition. <laughs> you know everything about the way that 
we're like the three tier system, um, the way that our state store system is run, um, not just ours, you know, Virginia's ABC and um, Ohio and all these different control states, um, how the, you know, reading all the articles about these, you know, giant distilleries that are pissed off at their distribution networks and how they want to, you know, go about it a different way. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know the history here. And that is some shady business, <laughs> like, you know, looking at all of this through the lens of pre-prohibition, if everybody could do that, this would be a very different dynamic. Like the, the smaller distilleries would understand that, you know, they can do things differently. They don't have to copy. They don't need to be doing that because what they had was better anyway. And, you know, if, and what, what they have is, is so promising and so full of potential and an opportunity, you know, having a pot still and having the opportunity to, to experiment and use interesting small grains and, you know, try different processes that's priceless. You know, the guys down in um, the big distilleries down in Kentucky do have lots of experimental batches that they do, but they could never do what these small distilleries could do. And if they stop trying so hard to copy and make their own version of what Kentucky's doing, they would blow it all away. They would just, you know, the, the distilling industry would be so interesting, you know? So. Well, I, I, I to that point, that's where I say for what we do with fermented adventure, we are finding those interesting, not look, there's, there is a certain track to run on because the consumer is asking for those things. It's right. like if, if you walk into a no, young distillery, right. the first thing most people ask is, you know, where's your bourbon? Where, where's where's your bourbon? You know, they, you know, do you have bourbon? They don't, you know, they don't stop and say, Hey, where are you buying? You're, you're a two-year-old distillery. Um, where are you getting your juice from? You know, right. most people don't think to ask that. Those in the bourbon world do, but when you stop and you find, like I said, you know, I poured Judson and more. This is a. I, I mentioned them earlier. This is this is their single malt, and these distilleries are making amazing, creative. They're curiosities. They really are. Mm. This is this is you know, grain and, and smokiness and just delightful mouthfeel and all together. But th that's where you have to search. It's not going to be at your liquor store aisle unless right. they have a little craft section. You're not going to find these oddities. You have right. to go to the oddity emporium. <laughs> you have to just go and visit these distilleries and you see do. what they're doing. It's, you do. it's incredible. I mean, to get to see even the interesting stuff at one of the big distilleries, you really need to know the master distiller and get a private tour. Like you can't go on those hard hat tours and see all the, the stuff going on behind closed doors, you know, like you don't even get to see the doubler, you know, like there, there's so many things that they just kind of gloss over because they don't see it as being necessary to your experience. But when you go to a small distillery, good lord, they'll tell you everything. <laughs> oh, you'll be there for days. They'll, you'll be there for by days. the end they'll, of the day. You're 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 helping cleaning out, you know, all the all the equipment. They're sticking you in the still. Here, right. take the scrub brush with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's there's so much. You're um, helping move barrels. It's it's a fun time. Oh, so fun! Yeah. And they're such great people, and they're all such you know, so happy to have you there because you mean business, and their business staying open, and you know. 
it's wonderful work what you're doing, like showing off all this um, variety that's out there because it is so varied. And, you know, talking to um, Alan Bishop up in um, Indiana and his uh, Black Forest stills and, and all the stuff he's doing with brandies. Of course, he's doing things with brandies. You know, he Indiana's famous for its brandies. New Jersey should be doing the same thing. I mean, you know, we we look at Laird's and we tend to go like, oh, Laird's, that's bottom shelf stuff. Oh, God, no. Like that distillery is the oldest licensed distillery in the country. And um, the, yes, they've moved their production facility and yes, things have changed, but it's still in the Laird family. You know, Lisa Laird Dunn is still running stuff like this is an incredible distillery now i would really like to go on a detailed tour of that distillery. <laughs> we'll see how that goes All right, let's make it happen <laughs> i would oh god how fun would that be i've always wanted to see that place because you know that's where i'm from you know the uh cold snack inn where they got their their first distillery and everything brandy and new jersey are like this same thing with pennsylvania eastern pennsylvania huge in brandy down uh, peach brandy Apple brandy, um, what's the one that pawpaws, persimmons, like brandy was big doings because it was everything was cyclical and seasonal. And so you can't make rye whiskey all year long. You make it till you run out of rye. By that time, it's, you know, you're into the fall and winter, and now you're distilling apple brandy. So the same still you were using to make your rye whiskey, you're now using to make apple brandy. And that stuff sell, sold like hotcakes. You made apple brandy as much as you possibly could from as many apples as you could get your hands on. And it was sold out faster than, you know, you could start your next season of distilling. So very, very popular stuff. And, you know, for us to neglect that is, you know, doing a disservice to the the history of, of our state and of, you know, New Jersey's and New York's. And There's see again, this is, this is why I I'm glad and I'm grateful for your time that we got to do this and, the, the education of even just brandies now, <laughs> you know, so, they, yeah, we, we, we were going to stick to whiskey. We were going to kind of focus on PA whiskey. <laughs> I had a whole bunch of notes here that uh, we didn't get to as far as things to talk about, I guess to ask, you know, for, for you right now, I know I asked and I didn't get really much of a detailed answer as to when the book comes out. Um, oh yeah. There's there, you know, do I ask about a convention that may be coming up soon? Uh, yeah, I'm in the planning stages of it. Um, there were initial plans underway and that kind of got foiled. Um, I, I don't like blaming things. Um, whatever can't get done is on me. Um, but there's been so much trouble with COVID and it's such a large scale event. You know, you have a thousand people coming. The city of Philadelphia has been kind of, you know, tippy toeing around what, what I was allowed to do the past couple of years. And, and now it's, you know, finito so we can finally um start looking at having this as an annual event again and um i think it's going to probably end up being september this year so um once i get things secured and in place and you know i have uh my ticket sales up and running you'll be the first to know <laughs> all right well i won't be because we're recording this and everybody oh. <laughs> else will be the first to know but this oh, is the american <laughs> whiskey convention this would be the sixth american whiskey convention right uh is it has it been so many years <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i mean we started doing the event in 2016 so it's it's uh, i just got a one of those pop-up memories on facebook the other day that was like seven years ago was your first and i was just like oh yeah wow. so 
before we go, and this has been a treat, like I said, is there anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about tonight? Any tangent you want to go down before we say goodnight? Uh, you know me. You start me again, you'll never <laughs> shut me up. <laughs> we'll just, we'll talk about more next time, I think. Yeah, there's there's always more to talk about. All right, tangents with Laura, t- whiskey tangents with Laura Fields. Thank you so much, Laura. <laughs> Thank you, Rich. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.